I'm Jeremy Rustin, and you're listening to The Changelog. Welcome back, everyone. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 196, and on today's show, Jared and I talk to Jeremy Rustin, the creator of TiddlyWiki, a unique, non-linear notebook for capturing, organizing, and sharing complex information. It's written in JavaScript and sports a custom fake DOM. We talked to Jeremy about his nearly 40-year career in programming, hackability as a human right, Tiddlers, the atomic unit of data in TiddlyWiki, and so much more. We have three sponsors for the show, TopTal, Linode, and BMC TrueSight Pulse. Our first sponsor of the show is our friends at TopTal, an exclusive network of top freelance software developers and designers. Top companies rely upon TopTal freelancers every single day for their most mission-critical projects, and I'd love for you to get in touch with me if you'd like a personal introduction to our friends at TopTal. If you're an engineer or a designer, you'll be a part of a worldwide community that loves to work on awesome projects with the flexibility to travel and see the world and blog on the TopTal blog or apply for open source grants or even have access to scholarship options. Head to TopTal.com to learn more or email me, adam at changelaw.com, if you prefer a more personal introduction to our friends at TopTal. And now, on to the show. All right, we're back. We got an awesome show today. This one, Jared, like many shows of ours, begins as an issue. Issue 248 on our ping repo. Go to github.com slash thechangelog slash ping. You'll see a bunch of issues there. Contribute back. Uh, recommend the show if you want to. But, Jared, it was FND who commented back in July. This is kind of crazy. It goes back to when we were at GopherCon. Remember that time? I do, and this is a, a, a great suggestion. Definitely a project that had never hit either of our radars and may never have. If it wasn't for FND, I wish FND would leave uh, his name somewhere on the internet so we could actually thank him by name. Well, we don't know if it's a he either because it's a fighter, fighter pilot and this is an avatar. I guess we assume that. That's true. We're not even sure. It's a genderless, faceless person. It is. So uh, thank you, genderless, faceless person, <laughs> FND. And I do like to read off specifically what was yeah. said because it was intriguing. And he or she said, uh, that TiddlyWiki, which is what we're here to talk about, was one of the earliest single-page applications and is in many ways both unusual and thought-provoking. Its latest incarnation was rewritten from scratch, taking advantage of the JavaScript community's modern tooling. So that was FND's take on why TiddlyWiki is interesting. And also, he, she said, uh, Jeremy Rustin will be a great guest. So, Jeremy, you're here. We really appreciate you joining us. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you very much, FND, as well. Yeah, so, Jeremy, we like to get to know our guests a little bit at the top. And so I did a little bit of looking up, and on Twitter I found an interesting bio, which says that you've uh, been learning to code since 1978. That's a long time. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I wonder um, the average age of your guests. I was thinking I'm probably hugely older. Um, but hopefully I can pull out some interesting perspectives Absolutely. that come from that. I mean, I um, got a first computer in 1978, as it says there. It was long before 
the web and long before object-oriented programming, long before databases, if you can imagine that. So what did you cut your teeth on then? Was it just C or what? <laughs> no, so my first computer was a crazy thing called the MK14. And it's just a circuit board that you soldered yourself. It had a processor called the 8060, um, also called the SCAMP, SC stroke MP. And it was, in fact, it was um, a bit of a precursor to the RISC chips in that um, one of the things that was regarded as freakish about it, it was intended for embedded applications, was that it didn't have a stack pointer. And instead, there were some conventions for using one of the general purpose registers as a stack pointer. Um, and obviously, because it was the first processor I touched, I had no idea that that was such an unusual thing. But then, however many years it was later, 15, 10, 15 years later, when I was working using the ARM chip, of course, I came across the same thing where register 15 is the program counter. Um, but anyway, it was a tiny 8-bit processor with 128 bytes of RAM. Um, I'm pretty sure the first program I wrote for it was a brute force multiplication program nice. that um, added numbers together. <laughs> um, and you programmed it with a hex keypad and a, uh, a seven-segment display. So there was no basic interpreter or anything like that, goes without saying. Um, but you know, it, nowadays, obviously, anybody who wants that experience simply picks up an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi or any of these fun little Im embedded processor cards. But there is something incredibly invigorating about working so close to the hardware, being able to relate what you're doing as a programmer with what you can see in the circuit diagrams and with what you can connect to the exposed ports is really fun. And, you know, um, programmers with my background are apt to feel, feel almost a little sorry for people who've mm -hmm. only, only had the chance to work in very high level environments. Well, you must be excited about some of the, the Arduinos and the, you still have you know, higher level languages, but at least, being able to feel like you're a little bit closer to the machine than than we normally operate on on the web. Oh well, yeah. I mean, and also having had the experience of working close to the machine, I also really enjoy the experience of working as far away <laughs> from the machine as possible. Yeah. In a way, you know, that's kind of the goal. We're trying to make computers tractable for humans, and in a way, that make means making them yeah. less like computers. It's interesting that to hear your take too on like. I never really thought about it, Jared, but you know how they, how the MK14, the Sinclair MK14, was a thing back in those days, and uh, you know, Jeremy, your history and where you came from, like you're you're a, uh, you know, let's see, this way to say it, you're an, you're an older guest than we normally have on the show, so you have this history that goes back, uh, I guess, to the early days of things taking place and the early surge of technology, and then now you see more and more like Arduino and uh, you know these kits so to speak that had this resurgence over the last you know say five years how how it was a thing and then how it's an, a thing again you know not 1977 now it's you know 2014 2015 um and you certainly see the see those patterns endlessly repeating and as mobile phones get 64-bit processors um, there's something else even smaller who gets the 8-bit processors that used to drive mobile phones. And yes, it's a, it's a great process. Um, I think as a, as a enthusiast for computers, one sense in which I feel extraordinarily privileged is that obviously 
right back since nineteen since the nineteen seventies. I've been um, keenly acquiring all the computers you know I could, and um, uh, and one remarkable thing is every computer I've got right up to the MacBook Pro that I'm um, speaking to you on now has been better than the previous one. Um, and that's amazing. If you think if, if we were um, horse riders, um, it wouldn't necessarily be true by the time you got to my age that every horse you acquired um, was better mm, than the previous not, one. Not without a big price. Um, but, <laughs> no, indeed, it's a tiny yeah. fraction of the price. But it's also terribly slow. You know, when the, in the 1970s, much of what we take for granted today was um, envisaged by um, you know by people who weren't that specialist. I remember my, my maths when I was playing with tape recorders in the early 70s. My maths teacher, tell it or math teacher, I should say, telling me that in the future there would be tape recorders <laughs> with no moving parts. Which thought was a fascinating mm. insight and it took me ages to kind of understand exactly what he meant and of course he was kind of talking about mp3 players which we then waited 30 years for and it wasn't wow. useful i couldn't have gone um bet on based on his prediction um but it just reminds us that technology while it's happening can seem like this tremendous rush but actually um it can be terribly slow and you know where there's all of us on the sidelines saying come on give us a 300 dpi full color display which i've been saying since the early mm. 1980s and it kind of didn't come true until a wow, year or two that's ago true. it took a while to get there indeed indeed here's a question i've been thinking about lately and i think jeremy i'm going to use you as my test subject to ask it and see how it goes so one thing i've been thinking about with software you know, we, we cover open source software and we all know how fast it moves. I think we'll talk to you later about JavaScript specifically and how fast that ecosystem moves. And something that I've come to think about more and really appreciate is longevity. Because especially in tech where we have a very startup, you know, disruption, fast moving, you know, companies are here today, gone tomorrow type of a, of a worldview. Um, longevity is something that's really valuable. And so one thing I've been thinking back is like for myself, what's the oldest piece of code that I've written or that I wrote back in the day, which is still running, still working, still doing its its job, you know, to the present. Or maybe it just quit working. And I just realized, oh man, that was running for seven years or whatever it happens to be. So I'd like to cast that at you, um, since you have such a long history of writing software. Can you think back and think what's the oldest bit of code that you wrote that's still providing some value today? Gosh, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm pretty confident that the software I wrote in Visual Basic in the early 90s um, that is um, still being used, um, including icon designs that I made um, pretty incompetently now that I've seen more icons. <laughs> um, I worked for an investment bank in the 90s, and so it's anyone's guess what's still running there because they do very odd combination of tearing things out um, at the first opportunity, but also keeping the most inappropriate things running for 28 wow. years. So they could easily stuff that too. But Visual Basic has been, you know, in um, in the programming landscape, has been one of the big survivors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's left an enormous um, And all the time in my you know, day job life outside of open source, I encounter surprisingly big business empires that are basically based on the back of a big big fat um visual basic application that's 
very, you know, typically is kind of molded around the needs of a specific vertical market. But still, you and I would look at it and go, see that icon in the top left? That's totally right. special basic. Yeah, very cool. So you recently gave a talk um, called Hackability as a Human Right. And we're going to get into TiddlyWiki. I think maybe this, your perspective at this, plays into the software that, that we're here to talk about today. Um, but before we get to all that, I would like to ask if you're willing to give us a synopsis of this talk and your ideas behind this hackability as a human right. Yeah, so it was, that talk was to a really fun conference called Wuthering Bites um, in um, the, the York, um, in the wilds of Yorkshire, in Hebden Bridge. And it's a lot of the people there are, are hardware hackers. So I was trying to think of something to say that was, you know, focusing on what unites software and hardware hackers, because although I had to solder together my early computers, I learned in the process that I'm not a hardware hacker. And having since then worked more closely with people who can wield a soldering iron, I know that it's not, you know, it's not my metier. And one of the words that software and hardware hackers use is, of course, mm -hmm. um, hacking. And all I was trying to do was to play with the idea that hacking, what is hacking? And, and hacking, obviously, I mean, in the white hat sense right. that one has to, <laughs> one has to specify. Um, and to me, hacking is uh, changing your environment. It's, in, it's tweaking and improving your environment, typically through engineering, but often just through cunning. Um, and to me, the an environment that you can't change, an environment that you're prevented from changing, is is essentially prison. You know that's how prison works. Is is um, everything happens to you, and you can't change anything in that environment. And so, like those two extremes, the the idea that hacking is a sort of an engineering expression of a human urge that if we didn't have, um, you know, we well, sorry, not that we would all be in prison if we didn't have, but that um, say our, our lives would be indistinguishable from prison if we didn't have that freedom. Um, and so, you know, we, we regard not being in prison as a basic human right for people who aren't criminals. Um, and I think it's, it's reasonable to to say to the extent that it doesn't hurt other people, people should have the right to change their environment around them to suit them. And obviously, particularly in the realm of writing software and creating digital devices, changing the world around you, you know, it's not um, it's not the James Bond villain thing of turning the oceans into a giant algae factory or something. We're just talking about improving the light switches, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, and I think I probably um, went on a bit about the aspects of all of that 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 I find matter to me. Um, and one of them that that maybe is a good theme for us to explore a tiny bit is that TiddlyWiki is unusual in open amongst open source projects. Um, not that unusual, but fairly unusual in that its the, its primary target are people and um, user base are people who are not software developers, they're end users. And of course, there are um, there's things like Firefox, for instance, um, a notable piece of open source software um, that's uh, directly used by end users. But if you think about it, and if you look at the um, charts on GitHub, the vast majority of open source products are things made by made by bunches of developers and consumed by a bunch of developers. And so open source is a lot of it is a, is a conversation between developers. Um, 
now the the aspect of TiddlyWiki being um, gosh, what was your original question? Oh, talking about the hackability as a human right and how that plays into to TiddlyWiki itself. I was going to bring that hackability point together with the observation that one of the unusual things about TiddlyWiki is that it's designed for end users. One of its properties is that it's it's generative. It lets end users make things. And so I like to think that it brings some of the magical powers that developers have. Because when, when we think of hacking, um, the digital realm that is um, accessible to developers pervades so much of our lives that if you have that capability as a software developer, you you do have these mini godlike powers. You you understand the technology around you and you're able to shape it to your needs. And that that's a, a remarkable capability. It's a whole um, it's a it's a multiplication of the power of technology. You know, technology in the hands of a programmer, you can do anything with a computer. In the hands of somebody who can't program, you can only do with it those things that the programmers um, equipped it to do for you. So I'm very interested in tools like TiddlyWiki, and there's, I think there's many others um, that provide a palette of tools and capabilities for end users or you know, people who aren't conventional software developers to achieve some of the goals that software developers take for granted all the time. Um, and so does that make sense? So, so I'm kind of thinking that our duty as developers, we have this sort of natural ability to hack the digital world about it, around us. And rather than jealously guarding that tech, that those skills and those techniques, we should be trying to bring as much of that experience to ordinary people as we can. And the reason why I think that's necessary is through TiddlyWiki, I've seen that if you provide a tool that can do that, people will build technology to serve extraordinary tiny niches that would never get filled in the in the commercial way. So, one one of my favourite applications of TiddlyWiki is a volleyball teacher who has used TiddlyWiki to create this extraordinarily detailed, extensible lesson planning system. And in fact, it's not, it produces bits of paper, things that I think are printed out and given to pupils and teachers and so on. But it's also got a whole user interface for defining exercises, goals, goodness knows what stuff. And when you look at it, because I know nothing about volleyball, the thing that's really obvious is that it's riddled through, the creation of it was riddled through with a knowledge and understanding of volleyball. And so the person who built it as a volleyball expert was able to build something that very closely matched their needs um, because of their tool, because of being able to use a, a tool mm. like TiddlyWiki. But, um, uh, but without it, there was no way that any of us software developers were going to say, oh, yippee, let's go and write the perfect software app for the volleyball right. industry. <laughs> so um, that's where I was coming from with the hackability as a human right thing, this idea that kind of trying to frame it as an obligation for us, for developers. I think it's important to um, you know, consider what you do um, in, a, in a thoughtful way. And one aspect of being a software developer is, is sort of ethical, yeah. um, philosophical considerations. And it's worth giving them a little. Yeah, thought. I love that idea. You're bringing hackability to the masses. And as the ones who are, you know, the niched, uh, the people with the current superpowers, right? The hackers of today, like we can bring that to them or we can just hoard it for ourselves. And so by building tools for end users that are extendable, are hackable, 
we're allowing a whole new class of things and ideas that we never would have come up with yeah. on our own. Awesome. Well, if I if if I got time to mention a specific one that I that I like gives a good example is that I think Git, um, or I mean source code control in general, but today that means Git um, is one of our superpowers as developers. That imagine that capability in the rest of our lives. It's the ability to make arbitrary changes to things, completely safe in the knowledge that you can wind them back. Mm. Um, that ability to experimentally change things is actually completely denied most people. If I think about my LinkedIn profile, so try and think of something that's the opposite of the concern of a software developer, I might want to change my LinkedIn profile to present myself differently. But there's no, you know, the, the, there's no um, rewind on GitHub. I can't go back to an earlier commit. There's just a whole bundle of apparently independent things that I can go in and change. And so that discourages experimentation um, and we see that all the time with end user behavior there's an old adage that um, a, a significant goal of users of software is to not mess up to not be seen to make a mistake so um yes there you go uh, i agree i think it's a great example the ability to rewind and start over um and have oh, that. Yes, I'm so sorry. I didn't complete the thought by connecting it to TiddlyWiki. Um, the, the will, I think, after the break, we'll be talking about the way that TiddlyWiki exists as a single file, and um, perhaps we'll touch on how that can give end users exactly this capability that we as developers get with Git. Yeah, absolutely. I think you teed it up well. Let's take our first break, and we get back. We will dive into TiddlyWiki um, and how all these ideas of yours play into that software and some of the success stories you've had with it. So we'll be right back. If you're looking for one of the most fastest, efficient SSD cloud servers on the market, look no further than our friends at Linode. You can get a Linode cloud server up and running in seconds with your choice of Linux distro, resources, and node location. And they've got eight data centers spread across the entire world, North America, Europe, Asia Pacific, and plans start at just 10 bucks a month with hourly billing Get full root access for more control, run VMs, run containers, run your own private Git server, enjoy native SSD cloud storage, 40 gigabit network, Intel E5 processors. Again, use the code changelog10 with unlimited uses. Tell your friends it expires later this year so you have plenty of time to use it. Head to linode.com slash changelog. All right, we are back with Jeremy Rustin talking about TiddlyWiki. And Jeremy, we're going to get into all the details. I love the idea of a tiddler. We're going to explain that, the single file, the extendability, the hackability. But before we get into all that, I want to hear about the the conception of TiddlyWiki. You know, there's lots of wiki solutions out there. And wikis are, in my view, kind of a quintessential part of the web and the open web. Um, and so all these wiki systems, most of them are open source systems because wikis kind of have that open uh, idea ingrained in them from the beginning. And so can you take us back to the to the origin of TiddlyWiki and, and why you thought that this had to exist in a world where there were other wiki uh, systems out there? TiddlyWiki's direct origin, as in why I started writing the code, and once I started writing the code, I learned other things that made me think other things, but the original motivation was based on a really simple observation that I'd been using wikis for maybe five or six years in various different work contexts by them, and found 
pretty much what everybody finds. They work really well in a technical community there. Um, they work less well as the community gets less technical. Um, but uh, more interestingly, I learned, um, as I guess everybody does, that you need to, that the ability to refactor content in a wiki is incredibly important and that a useful wiki that's shared with a shared within a group needs kind of constant tending everybody needs to be looking out for opportunities to improve it and i'll call those improvements refactorings and um what you what are you, you observe with people using say media wiki is if they're approaching there's two perhaps archetypal refactorings with a wiki one is to split a page into two um, you know one existing page you realize that there's a subtopic there that deserves its own page you shift it off into a separate page or conversely you've got two pages that you realize are about almost the same thing and you merge them together and when you watch people doing that with media wiki particularly you will see them open those various pages in different tabs so that they can more easily jump between them and if you're if you've got the keyboard shortcuts to hand for dealing with tabs it can make that kind of refactoring actually pretty efficient and you know when you switch between tabs most browsers will retain the current selection within a text area so it's quite easy to kind of line things up and get quite efficient that way although i'm sure the emacs and vim users will argue that there's <laughs> more efficient ways to operate anyway so i it made me wonder um whether there was a more direct way that the software could support um, the interactions necessary for users to perform those kinds of refactorings. And then I saw Gmail at the beginning of 2004, signed up at the 1st of April 2004, I believe was when they launched it. And um, it seems extraordinary to a modern audience, but the uh, um, uh, the innovation in Gmail was the way that it showed multiple email messages at once. Until that time, um, pretty much all email clients, you'd seen a list of individual emails in the thread, you selected one of them, and then the text of that email was displayed. And this idea of having the same user interface gadget that was used to display an individual message repeated down the page, to me, I thought, I thought that was really attractive. It made brilliant use. It's one of the things that is kind of second nature when you think about the web as a web page, um, but rather alien with a sort of more old-fashioned visual basic laying things out on a, on a cork board sort of view, which is rather the, was the prevailing view at the time. So um, all I did was to combine those two existing ideas that I saw to create a wiki um, where the pages um, were shown as um, individual chunks on a page. So actually, I've, <laughs> I've explained it badly because um, I was already interested in the kind of philosophy of recording and reusing information. Mm. And one of the ideas that I, I think I evolved, but that probably means that I read it, was the idea, well, two linked ideas, really, that the purpose of recording information is so that we can reuse it and that the way to optimize information for reuse is to chop it up into little bits. Um, and th those are kind of assertions um, that, that I have no um, formal proof of, mm -hmm. um, but that's based on my experience of, of watching you know, myself and, and other people working on stuff. And this small chunks of information thing is also, um, it was part of, at the time, I had con 
I wanted to write as to be part of the blogosphere, um, but I knew that my tendency was to write very long pieces. I'd been trained in essay writing and with lots of, um, I have to kind of kick myself to remove the rhetorical flourishes. So I rather liked the whole idea of building a, a tool that encouraged brevity, that encouraged concisely expressed ideas, so that by optimizing the tool for small chunks of text, mm -hmm. you would avoid the problem that somebody faced with a massive blank text area will feel compelled to fill the text area you know, with unnecessary embellishment and detail. Nobody likes blank either. You know, like it's, it's, if you see a blank page, you, yes. uh, designers out there that are familiar with Photoshop and a brand new document, it's like, it's this document you open up and it's just white and it's doesn't encourage any sort of creation. Yes. Whereas in TiddlyWiki, when you add something to an existing wiki, your, you know, your new item will appear alongside the existing entries. It feels explicitly like you're um, accreting onto an existing thing, whereas presented, yes, presented with a, a white box, although sometimes it's what you want, um, isn't necessarily conducive to thinking. Yeah. So that was, that was kind of the idea. And I thought what needed to be, uh, what I had a number of other sort of ideas floating around that seemed to, to connect with it. And at the time, Flickr had just launched. And so I thought that the obvious thing to do was to create a service like Flickr that would be based on what I was calling micro content, um, small fragments of text that people would share and tag and arrange into albums and sequences and so on. Um, so pretty much Flickr for text for small fragments of text. And the very first thing I did to explore that was to create a prototype in JavaScript. And at the time, I'd only had the um, loosest experience with JavaScript. I'd looked at it from a distance and thought it looked like C and, um, and not really got much beyond that. But wrote this tiny prototype. And at the time, I didn't have access to a server. Um, and so, um, a friend of mine had a static server. Um, so the easiest way for me to um, kind of publish this demo so that I could talk to people about it was to create it as a standalone HTML page with embedded JavaScript, you know, that, that ran the demo, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I put out what I thought was, you know, what people do all the time, a simple JavaScript demo that I thought would, would maybe start a conversation and uh, you know, help me to explore the ideas that I was um, expressing within it or help me to explore them with other people. Um, and what actually happened was it, it, it got a certain amount of um, attention from a couple of at the time. It was blogs that used to be how people obtained links to interesting stuff on the web and a blog called Kotke covered it. And, um, oh, yeah. Love that blog. On yeah, it's like the yeah, oldest still, blog out there, basically. I still read yeah. Kotke, yeah. Yeah. yeah, every day. Well, back then it, it, it seemed like um, being covered by Entertainment Weekly. Yes. That's not the that's not the best example, I think, is it? But it felt, you know, felt like um, a very, you know, very um, big a, splash. Delight, absolutely delighted. Yeah, um, and um, so then there's a flood of people who don't know anything about wikis coming to this demo, and they go. Uh, when I say they, I mean the feedback that I then read, particularly on there was a bookmarking service called Delicious at the time. 
And so one of the sort of ways that I got feedback then that would be kind of on Twitter now was the comments that people left as they bookmarked tiddlywiki.com mm. and you know, the graph of people increasing. And the reaction to it was, hey, that's really great. Um, once they fix it and make it work properly. And I was like, what do you mean? And the um, and the, people's expectation, despite the fact that I'd build it as a demo, was that it was a product. And so it got to be rather a, um, uh, so the way that I'd written TiddlyWiki, you could, this initial demo of it, was that you could make changes to it. So you could interact with this JavaScript application. And then when you tried to save your changes, it popped up a pop-up window that then JavaScript printed out your data in basically in HTML and you could copy and paste it elsewhere. And so what people were saying was that when you press save, it should actually save your changes uh -huh. so that the HTML file is modified. And I got incredibly frustrated um, saying to myself and others, well, that's ridiculous. Of course you can't do that. An HTML file loaded in the browser can't save changes. That's absurd. Um, but uh, then saw that somebody else had worked on a Firefox extension that let TiddlyWiki save changes. So it used the privileged APIs that were available to Firefox extensions to access the file system and save the HTML file. And then I discovered that these same APIs were actually not that privileged and you could use them from an ordinary HTML file. So then suddenly um, it was, a, well, I thought that was a rather nice example of something I found before that there are certain there are certain situations that the best response to them is just to write code. And, you know, when people are giving you a hard time about shortcomings of a product or um, then just write code. And it's often the most, the most useful response. And in this case, I'd unexpectedly um, uncovered what I now think is a potentially important but still much overlooked way of running software. And it's basically the idea is to treat the browser as a virtual machine. And you, know, you can, um, if you're paying attention, of course, the browser is quite explicitly a virtual machine. Right. It's a virtual machine for running JavaScript. But start to think about the browser as being a virtual machine container in the same way as virtual machine containers, hypervisors. And you realize that it's not so very far away. You can provision a new virtual machine by pressing Command T. Um, the computing power available within a browser tab, of course, um, exceeds that slice of computing power that um, Facebook.com or Google.com is going to grant to your um, uh, to your unique needs. It's good. I mean, you're 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 describing uh, a little bit of the history of TiddlyWiki. You started off with this this demo of an idea around these small chunks of text. And then you know, provoked, people, yeah. People got mad at you, and so you, you know, you decided I'm just going to code instead of reacting. I'm just going to, you know, keep coding. Um, at which point, now you've decided that you're going to start storing all of the information in in the browser, and you're going to start using it as a virtual machine. Um, so a little bit, you're giving us the background of how TiddlyWiki came to be. Maybe let's 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 talk about this idea a little bit more of the unique, or excuse me, of the small. Um, small chunks of text. Because it seems like that's the idea that has continued forward as you've developed the software. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that we pulled off of, I'm not sure if it was your website or a blog post, is that you said that 
um, Tiddlywicky is based on the idea that information is more reusable if it is sliced up into the smallest, semantically meaningful chunks, and then woven back together to make narratives and stories. And you call these tiddlers, which I think I referenced earlier. Yeah. Um, is that that seems like the unique bit? That seems like its unique take on the world. Yes, and it's well, again, it's 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 a bit accidental and a bit deliberate. Um, the word tiddler came from writing the code. That inside in the code, I was at first thinking I'm dealing with objects, nodes, items. You know, all those words, records that we use for generic things that you deal with, and lots of apps generalize everything. Like I don't know, I think WordPress does generalize everything to the point where basically everything is a post. Mm. Um, and so I needed a word to describe that thing, and. Um, had beforehand um, come across the advantages of neologizing, you know, an unusual word. And tiddler uh, came, um, comes from an English English word. Tiddler just means small, tiddly. It also mm -hmm. means drunk, so it's kind of a joke. Um, uh, that where like tiddlywinks comes from, the game with the little... I think wings. that's different again. That's I different. think that's just that it might be that might well, it might be the the young person. Um, so you know, a game for mm. tiddlers. Um, gotcha. These are my tiddlers, so you could say about my you know, young children or something. But um, uh, but it turned out that it was the right place to neologize that the idea of a tiddler, although closely related to lots of similar ideas in other applications. Is is so important and central to TiddlyWiki that it's worth neologizing and choosing a word that mm -hmm. we get to define, um, and that is pretty much the definition that you gave. The idea of the smallest semantic unit. So one often, uh, when one uses TiddlyWiki, you might write you know, um, a stream of consciousness. You write for ten minutes to capture what you just did for the previous hour, um, and then. As I mentioned before, an archetypal tiddlywiki refactoring would be to slice out chunks into separate tiddlers. And then it's kind of the, the idea of active learning, that when you learn something, you write it down. Um, and that, that improves your chances of remembering it. If you write it down and then do something with it, use it, that improves your chances even further. So the idea that you'll record information, refactoring it, changing the title so that it makes more sense when you refer back to it in the future, giving it some tags so that it gets tied together into different categories, um, weaving it together into, weaving it into different stories along with other items. Those kinds of, they're ways of exploring your data and kind of, sorry, exploring your yeah. information. Um, and, and crucially, presenting snapshots of it to other people. Um, so, you know, a common, you think about people who do stuff in Excel, a common thing is they've got some unholy mess of spreadsheets and macros in the background, but what comes popping out at the far side is a fairly simple spreadsheet that everybody can understand, showing the disposition of sand in the sand hills or whatever mm -hmm. it is. Uh, you know, one thing that FND said is, is first of all, that these the way it's built is unusual and thought-provoking. It's probably this idea, because I think that is the uniqueness. When I think of a wiki, I think of the, the small, it's a bunch of pages, you know, and you edit a page, and then you link pages. Yeah. And, you know, with WordPress, like, they had posts, and everything was a post, and then they added some pages, and then they started yeah. to, like, you know, it started to expand beyond that idea. And so the software and then the nomenclature had a change, and they started to you know, 
started to get that square peg in a round hole. Um, and it seems like uh, the, the, the same problem can happen with a page where, like you said, if you're refactoring or you're, I, I think of it like trimming the hedges, like you're, you're maintaining the, the wiki, you start to realize that like pages is not small enough for things to actually fit together in the way that you think about them in, in your mind. And so I think the, the reason why it is unusual and thought provoking is because you, you're really focusing down on uh, really small units of, is it just text or is a tiddler, can a tiddler be an image or a link? Can a tiddler can be an image. Okay. Um, links, you can, there are situations where it makes sense to, to use a tiddler to represent a link, but you can also have links embedded within a tiddler and you can have MP3 tiddlers, WAV tiddlers. I mean, you know, anything yeah. with a mime type, you can do something within a browser. It deals with very interestingly. It also works with SVG. Um, but to pick up your point about TiddlyWiki not seeming like a wiki, um, there's um, the most common characteristic of a wiki is this idea of a, a wiki that anybody can edit. It's the kind of yeah. um, a page that anybody can edit. It's the um, highest expression, purest expression of the idea of a, of a shared space. It's a shared space with no rules and um, you know, no no admins often. Um, but I always felt what was interesting about wikis wasn't that at all, although that is interesting. It was the way that wikis turn linking into part of the punctuation of writing. So I've always found hypertext and the, yes. you know, the, the previous developments in hypertext very interesting. And one of the my observations is I think um, hypertext is an expression of a fairly common set of beliefs about how our brains work and our brains work to many of us feel <laughs> without being too presumptuous um, that some of the time it's useful to think of our brains as lumps of things connected by lines you know a, 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 mm -hmm. as would be depicted in a mind map would be a very direct expression of that vision that people have now tiddlywiki doesn't seek to express those relationships graphically like a mind map although it can and there's a plug-in to do mind mapping but it seeks to give you a data structure that's rich enough to represent those kinds of structures so the tiddler within tiddlywiki once you get to the level of detail beyond its smallness um, it's a kind of universal data structure for thinking about items of data. And um, it's in you know, computer science terms, it's, a, it's just a hash map by title um, of, and a tiddler is essentially a, a, a hash map of, of field values, named field values. So it's a similar data model to um, a lot of the NoSQL databases at the moment, um, for instance. Um, and um, yeah, that's turned out to be kind of easy to do because it's um, uh, hypertext, as I say, is, we're four, 50 years into the history of hypertext. Um, and uh, we've got some, um, there's some strong evidence that people like linking as a metaphor for, well, as a way of expressing relationships between items. As software developers, we certainly to define and have this nomenclature to, to things and understanding the, the depth and also your path to understand what a tiddler is and what it means to you and how it's a, an atomic unit and it's the smallest atomic unit is, uh, is going to give us a lot of clarity, especially as we get into the more technical pieces. Um, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll dive a little deeper into TiddlyWiki, uh, how tiddlers plan to this larger technical piece that we'll, we'll cover on the other side. So... We'll be right back. 
We're excited to be working with BMC to spread the word about TrueSight Pulse, their infrastructure monitoring service with one second resolution. I talked to Mike Warren, the senior architect, about the importance of alarming, but more importantly, the importance of more accurate alarming. We also talked about integrations and how that plays into communicating internally across your teams, as well as outside your organization. Take a listen. So alarming comes in really handy when you have one second data, because we actually collect at different resolutions and we aggregate that data into one second, 15 seconds, 60 seconds, five minutes. And what that allows us to do is we can actually pull out some of the noise and give you more accurate alarms. Now the question is, what do you do for me? Send me an email? Well, that's not gonna be very helpful. Really what I want is I wanna find a way to push that towards my team so we're all knowing what's happening with the services, what's up, what's down, what's fixed, what's not. And that's where the integrations come in. So integrating in with things like your chat. How do I integrate into my other tools like PagerDuty or OpsGenie? So how do I take advantage of hooking up who's on call and who's not? And then potentially, how do I do automation? So fire off a webhook or potentially if you have another setup, you can set off an email and maybe that triggers something for you. But essentially, you end up with that full round trip with everybody involved in that process. Uh, and that's your developers and your operations team because both of them have to be involved and know what's happening. Uh, so kind of with that end-to-end -end level, we can pull the different stats from everywhere. We can share those dashboards between anybody in your team at a certain point in time, and we can embed those dashboards into any of your existing dashboards or monitoring tools or things you may have. And that gives you the ability to share that information outside your organization. So that way you kind of have that one single piece that you can talk about, share about, and see those metrics everywhere. I A, have the ability to have that communication with my team, and I B, have the ability to have that same visualization across my team and external to our team. That was Mike Morin, the senior architect of BMC's TrueSight Pulse. Head to bmc.com slash Pulse, all in word, to learn more and tell them Adam from the Log sent you. All right, we're back for the break. TillyWiki, Jeremy is here. We're talking, uh, you know, we quite, we quite, uh, we talked about breaking down each of the pieces, uh, tiddlers, as you called it, I, I love the the backstory there, especially tying back to the UK where you're from. If if you're listening to the show and you couldn't tell that's where Jeremy's from, then uh, check your ears or something like that. But uh, TiddlyWiki is 98.5% according to GitHub uh, JavaScript. Uh, how do you, you know, we cover that a lot around here. We have a weekly email. We're always seeing the the ups and downs, and we even cover the you know the madness of frameworks in JavaScript and the, the fatigue that comes from it. So uh, having such a JavaScript depth to TillyWiki, how do you personally deal with the this ever-changing JavaScript landscape? That's a good question. So TillyWiki started in 2004 before any of those things existed. So I had to write my own um, bits of code to smooth over the differences between different browsers, for instance. Um, there was no jQuery. So um, I, over the years, what I've discovered is that for reasons that are fairly specific to TiddlyWiki, it's quite useful to keep it as um, clean as possible. So it's pretty much self-contained. Um, it doesn't use any external libraries. 
um, but you can use external libraries with it. So there's a sense in which some of the considerations that you'd apply to a library actually apply to TiddlyWiki, even though it's uh, even though it's an application. So I've been in the happy position of being able to watch and experiment with lots of JavaScript libraries. So D3, for instance, um, is, which I guess now is probably five or six years old. Um, was one of the things that helped me to understand the potential of SVG in the browser. Um, so SVG at that point, embarrassingly, we hadn't realized that a technology that had been broken in 2002 had quietly got fixed over the following five or six years. Um, uh, more recently, things like Angular and Reactive, the kind of second wave of frameworks, I'm I don't use those frameworks because, say, TiddlyWiki is kind of is its own framework. TiddlyWiki um, has a an a, I'm conscious this might be going a little bit too deep. No, that's okay. But some well, of what well, TiddlyWiki does. If is, I could jump in, how is it? Uh, describe how TiddlyWiki is its own framework. So, I mean, you'd mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned React, and I couldn't remember what else you said, but because um, I was trying to follow along. But how is it its own framework? From a distance, this will seem like a circuitous answer, but hopefully we'll get there in the end. Um, from a distance, what a wiki is, is is a piece of code that converts wiki text into HTML. Um, I, in the case of TiddlyWiki, um, and particularly the new version, my goal was to make the wiki text powerful enough that the user interface of TiddlyWiki itself could be written in its own wiki text thus making it highly extensible, etc. And it's just like writing Chrome developer right. tools being written in JavaScript. It's kind of um, uh, a, a logical approach. And um, so you can imagine then that the pipeline that goes from Wikitext to the DOM needs to be interactive in that case. So what TiddlyWiki does is it parses the raw text of the Tiddler into a pretty straightforward syntax tree. Um, and then it executes that syntax tree into what TiddlyWiki calls the widget tree, which is pretty much the virtual DOM tree that you see in things uh, like React and Angular. And the virtual DOM tree, then there's a process that does, well, close to the minimum or a, fair, a fairly good <laughs> subset of the maximum updates, selective updates to the DOM. So um, if we've got a wiki text construction like a transclusion, which will be familiar to JavaScript programmers um, from ordinary web development templates, so double moustache in double moustache, I'm sorry, in wiki text um, typically means transclude this other page, make it appear as if this page is here. And so in an interactive wiki like TiddlyWiki, you want to make sure that if the text of that target page that is being transcluded changes, then we get minimal DOM updates to update the transclusion, but not the text around it. And that's what TiddlyWiki does. And that enables um, all the paraphernalia that you see in the user interface, things like tabs and drop downs and, and everything else, um, is modeled as the state of tiddlers. So the state of the user interface is modeled as tiddlers. To update the um, DOM with the state of the user interface, we um, render one single Wikitext template that expands out to be the entire um, DOM tree of the user interface. 
So what I described there was is kind of talking about the internals of other libraries and many of the people who use those libraries wouldn't necessarily think about them working in that way. And I find that when I read about these libraries, I have to kind of do some picking apart to relate my understanding of what they do to you know what I know about how TiddlyWiki works. Um, but it's good to see that we're all on the same page. You, know, you don't you do stuff in JavaScript as much as you can. You don't touch the DOM unless you have to. Um, back in 2004, a very common idiom was that you kept maintained state in the DOM, and it's still an incredibly useful trick on the web and appropriate in a lot of circumstances. But um, all of these products, including TiddlyWiki, um, gain enormously from moving all of the state into JavaScript variables and treating the uh, treating the entire DOM as essentially transient as something that you can recreate at will. Um, so that stuff, th those characteristics of TiddlyWiki, interestingly, aren't, they're not appreciated in the terms I've just described them by the users. It's a kind of, it's a very developer-ish yep. quality that I'm describing. Which, which we're happy to hear as, as uh, developers ourselves and developer audience. So feel free to, uh, to, sh to share those details. They're absolutely interesting to us. So uh, one thing that uh, FND uh, mentioned is that the, and maybe I missed it, so forgive me if I did, that this latest uh, incarnation of what TiddlyWiki is was rewritten from scratch. Was there like a big rewrite somewhere in the history? And what was the reason for that? Um, there were a whole multitude of reasons. But the main one was that some of the quality of the code in the original TiddlyWiki was pretty poor. I didn't know JavaScript when I wrote the first version. I thought it resembled C and I treated it like C for a few weeks and then gradually learned more and more about JavaScript. Um, but it meant that there were decisions that were there were decisions that were impossible to reverse because other people had written code plugins and so on that was based on my code. So I really felt that to fix the internal architecture we needed a complete rewrite. But there was also an opportunity in the change in the environment that JavaScript had shifted from being regarded as a niche embarrassment to become somewhat mainstream. So somewhere in 2011, Node.js launched. And I'd been waiting for that when I was uh, working for BT um, in the, about oh, 10 years ago. Um, I looked at Rhino so that it was possible to run JavaScript on the server. I used Rhino in back fact, in, in the, the day. Late, yeah, in the late 90s, the Netscape had, a, um, had a, um, some software that involved running um, JavaScript on the server. Um, and looking at Rhino, the making TiddlyWiki as I had written it work in Rhino would have been almost impossible um, because uh, TiddlyWiki was heavily based on the DOM. There was no DOM in Rhino and there was no decent support for writing web applications, for writing web servers. So when Node.js came out, that seemed like an, a wonderful opportunity um, to uh, fix one of the biggest frustrations for me about TiddlyWiki, which was the limitations that stemmed from it running as a single HTML file in the browser. So it's the, it's the quality of TiddlyWiki that leads to its most unique and unexpected features. Um, but it also, as everybody listening to the podcast, um, has profound limitations. You know, there, there are um, pretty severe limitations to what you can do in the browser. 
and I was confident that the um, ideas that we, the community, had explored with TiddlyWiki were each equally applicable to the server. So um, the opportunity when Node.js um, came out, the idea of writing TiddlyWiki as an isomorphic application became overwhelming. And uh, I left the job that I was in uh, in order to do more flexible freelance consultancy work so that I could spend a bit more time on this rewrite. So how does the how are how is the wiki content persisted nowadays? It depends where you're running it. In a way, this is the easiest audience to explain it to. Imagine mm -hmm. that we've got a function, just like I described, that takes a chunk of wiki text and um, converts it to the DOM. Mm -hmm. so, to run that on the server, we have an implementation of a, of a very simple, I call it the fake DOM, but you know, JavaScript, pure JavaScript implementation of the DOM APIs, so that on the server we manipulate um, that fake DOM and then we do an inner text on it to extract the HTML. So given that engine and its capability of running in both of those places, um, we can run in a bewildering number of configurations. Um, uh, so we can run entirely in the browser, and we save changes using HTML5's download attribute, which is a standard, attribute, a standard feature of HTML5 that allows JavaScript executing in the browser to prompt for a download. So in that case, the experience is that each time you press save, you get a fresh copy of your up-to-date copy of your document. And that's not bad. It means that you get cumulative backups. Or you can configure your browser to prompt you when you save. And then saving is a two-click operation, but you update the original HTML file. Or there's a extension for Firefox that allows TiddlyWiki to save directly to its own file. Or there's a um, NWJS-based desktop application that acts as a sort of custom browser that lets the single file configuration of TiddlyWiki again persist changes directly. Or you can run it under Node.js where individual tiddlers are served over HTTP to another instance of TiddlyWiki running in the browser. And then your changes are persisted as uh, individual files. So each tiddler is an individual file. Um, uh, or you can run TiddlyWiki in Amazon Lambda um, where it starts up, reads a whole load of tiddlers from DynamoDB um, mashes them together and then squirts the files out to Amazon S3. So really, although it's packaged and presented as a product, and I highlighted how important to me it is that it serves the needs of end users, mm -hmm. what it is, in fact, functionally, is a um, reusable JavaScript library for handling wiki text. And within TiddlyWiki, we reuse it endlessly. So I described how yeah. we convert wiki text like headings and lists and so on to HTML. But we use the same engine to convert um, style sheets. So inside TiddlyWiki's style sheets, we transclude what would in something like SAS be a variable. So we've got magic tiddlers that contain, say, the background color of the page. And then in a style sheet, wherever you want um, to reference the background color of the page, you just transclude that tiddler. And that's, that's a characteristic that I think all developers love, is the idea that you only introduce new mechanisms reluctantly. And when you do introduce a new mechanism, you make it pay its keep by using it 
um, uh, orthogonally on on lots of different problems that have the same shape. Yeah. And you, you know, I think you see that in in lots of software. And as I say, TiddlyWiki uses the same pipeline, the same processing pipeline to do interactive rendering in the browser to produce static renderings on the server that you know then get served on a static web server. Yeah, plus all this internal stuff, like the way it handles style sheets, the way that it handles color palettes, all that kind of thing is all Wikitext mechanisms reused. And there's something very pleasing about it as the creator. Yeah. But the idea is, as a user, it's tools that behave like that have this pleasing property that you know you learn how these components work and ideally you know in a sequence where where you learn about the gradually more complicated ones and then kind of like a bicycle they become um they're kind of the internal structure is sufficiently apparent that you can have a strong mental model of how to use the tool you can anticipate how it's going to behave in a situation where you haven't used it before it turns into um, you know, something that feels like an augmentation um, of your brain. And that takes us back to Vannevar Bush and the early hypertext mm-hmm. pioneers. They were obsessed with the heretical idea that people would use computers interactively. So in their work, one of the challenges they faced was just persuading people that that was practical mm-hmm. um, and that the purpose of doing that was to extend our capabilities. You sent us a nice uh, write-up in Network World about TiddlyWiki. We'll link that up in the show notes. Um, one thing they said in that, which I thought was super interesting, but I think it plays into this idea of a single pipeline, is that TiddlyWiki is a quine. Uh, that some, yes. of us, some of us know what that is. Some of us don't. Um, I've actually seen these before. I don't think Adam had, but they're uh, quine, Q-U-I-N-E. It's the idea of a program that doesn't have any inputs, but as it's the process of it running, it outputs its own source or it's, it outputs itself as the program. And I've only seen those as like mental gymnastics type of yes. things like one liners. How do you do that? Can you do this in this language? They're very short snippets and they're, you know, it's a, it's kind of a, not a toy, but just a way of people to challenge themselves. And I've never Absolutely. seen an actual full on useful program. That's also a quine. Can you speak to that? Yes, um, there's well, you'll see some spectacularly useless quines. I've seen quines now that run in more than one language, quines that are also ASCII art at the same time. Um, so yes, there's no limit to how much effort people will put into these um, apparently pointless pursuits. Yeah. Um, but it's because it's it, it speaks to some sort of inner satisfaction. It's like a, you know an automaton that can reproduce itself is a fascinating thing, especially if you throw it in a lake of raw ingredients. Um, so yes, it's a kind of uh, timeless vision. Love that. Absolutely love that. Well, uh, let's take our final break, and we want to talk about a few other things on the, on the other side. Uh, specifically, we talk about deployment and all these different ways you can persist it. I want to talk to you about like what that looks like for your end users, You know whether they're going to tiddlywiki.com or it's a one-click install on a shared hosting or like how the the end users come to tiddlywiki and set up their own and, and use them. Um, and then also we'll talk about getting started, helping out, getting involved, you know, if you're looking for uh, helpers or, or not. Um, so we'll discuss those things as well as our closing questions on the other side of this break. 
Here at the Changelaw, we have two emails we'd love for you to subscribe to. The first is Changelaw Weekly. Now, we've been shipping this email for several years now. We ship it every single Saturday morning. It's everything that hits our open source radar. It's our editorialized take on what happened this week in open source and software development. Go to changelaw.com weekly to subscribe. And our second email is Changelaw Nightly. Every single night, we ship this email out covering all the top new and top star repos on GitHub at 10 p.m. Central Time. It's all the latest stuff on GitHub before it blows up. It's often our own radar. We're often creating shows and finding new people, finding new projects, putting things on our own radar based on what we find in there. So we'd love for you to subscribe to that. Head to changelaw.com slash nightly. And now back to the show. So Jeremy, before the break, you described all these different ways that you could you know, persist your tiddlers um, into different uh, backends, even AWS Lambda, which is pretty interesting. And I started thinking, this sounds like a really awesome hacker tool. Like, you can do it this way, you can do it that way. It's what hackers love. Like, give me the flexibility, give me the freedom. I want to run it on a Raspberry Pi. I want to put it on the digital ocean. Um, but you also want this to be a general purpose, usable tool for anybody, not for just hackers. So, What's the use case of somebody who's coming to it and they're just looking for a wiki or they're just looking for this web-based notebook? How do they use TiddlyWiki? Great question. My approach to it um, has actually evolved um, over the time of the rewrite. When I started the rewrite, I thought that um, it was important to present TiddlyWiki in all of its um, all of its multifariousness. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but all of these different things mm-hmm. that you could do with it. Um, so I presented them or tried to present them on the site as if they were kind of peers. Um, and what I found was that that was confusing for quite an important constituency, which is the people who were going to use the single file version of TiddlyWiki were terrified of GitHub, didn't have any any understanding of the command line, so the, the non-developer types. Right. So what I've ended up doing is making two pathways, if you like, gosh, that's a ridiculous word, but one is um, people going to tiddlywiki.com, we try to help them as quickly as possible to start using the standalone edition um, on their machines. Um, and the or GitHub, and uh, it's github.com slash germaline slash tiddlywiki5, which is the, the rewrite version. Um, is information for a developer audience mm-hmm. and that does try to um, uh, give a taste of all of this uh, of all of these possibilities but i think as, as other open source projects have found it's when the all of these interesting developments in the project a lot of them aren't from me that they're, they're scattered throughout the community and they're at very different stages of development and um, and you know, some people have different you know, publish at different times um, so the community can seem very fractured um, you know, we, we've we've done a great job in open source of, of adopting tools that help to minimize that effect and github itself of course you know, the, the word hub is right in that to remind us of its main purpose is that it's the you know, it's the um, what do you call it? The village green for open source development. Right. Speaking of GitHub, uh, I was on the, the TiddlyWiki GitHub page there, and I noticed something that was a little bit concerning, and I just wanted to talk to you about the, the state of it, because actually one of our closing questions is sometimes um, how can the open source community help support 
TiddlyWiki or the project you know that is important to you in this case TiddlyWiki. And one thing I noticed is you got a whole bunch of open issues out there. You got a lot of pull requests. You got 67 open pull requests. You got 520 open issues. And so I'm just curious if maybe you know the demand and the you know people the interest in TiddlyWiki is overwhelming you or you got it under control. What's the situation there? Interestingly, you're raising something that we in the community are, are trying to tackle at the moment. It's partly the result of a of a poor decision that we made um, uh, last year, maybe the year before. Um, so we use um, Google Groups as the mailing list for the project, and we've got a um, mailing list called TiddlyWiki and a mailing list called TiddlyWiki Dev. The first for users, and the and the second for developers. And um, I think pretty much we all hate it, um, it but um, <laughs> it's you know it's it happens to be. Um, where we tied our horse, uh, that's a bad metaphor, but right at the beginning. Um, and um, some of the non-developers, anyway, for various reasons, we decided to experiment with using GitHub issues for discussions. Uh -huh. And so quite explicitly, we had the policy that it was okay to um, have basically anything that you wanted to discuss as an issue mm. um, uh, without a clear policy on closing the issues. We're moving now to a much more conventional and I must say familiar for me approach. Yeah, that's a yeah, lot of issues. I was worried. It's and you, uh, you, you'll see um, they're, they're worth of those. I mean, a fifth of them are one person, um, uh, and that's uh, and and you uh, uh, should be extremely careful that I think that in open source we are incredibly lucky whenever anybody opens their mouth, even if they're saying something, the same thing as somebody else, mm -hmm. any kind of feedback is like oxygen for an open source project. Um, and it's obviously, it's only other people's interest that keeps, you know, keeps any, any project like this yeah. alive. Um, so yeah, bit of a misstep on how we handled issues. We're moving to um, issues being more explicitly needing, well, explicitly being the to-do list for the core developers and there being basic requirements about actionability in order for them to remain open. And um, we will you know, continue to host, I'm sure, lively discussions on closed issues, but we'll try and keep the open issues, the above the waterline issues, reflecting what we think is actually you know, doable, actionable work. Well, it makes sense for issues, but what about pull requests? Um, oh, well, I mean, A, I'm behind, so there's, but you'll... You'll see if you look back that some of those issues have been around for an embarrassingly long time. So again, I've not had a clear policy on closing mm -hmm. pull requests. So to, if they, where they've gone off into a discussion, I've tended to just leave them open. And the reason is because I haven't been using pull requests or issues as my to-do list. Mm -hmm. I've been tending to fall back to using essentially using email as my to-do list. You know, you respond to the tickets that, that thanks to the noise on them, they've risen to the top of yeah. your inbox. Squeaky wheel so gets the oil. It's also, I think it kind of reflects our peculiar heritage as having a, a, a substantial audience that are not developers. Um, so a lot of those, a lot more of my tickets, I think, are open by non-developers than you know, would be typical for, for a a library or a framework or something. Um, in terms of pull requests, I wonder, I think TiddlyWiki is also quite hard for new developers to get into 
because of some of the things we touched on, it is its own framework. Right. It's not like working in jQuery, not keeping state in the DOM is profoundly difficult for people who've only ever worked that way. Um, so we do, uh, and plus I'm sure other people have experienced the same thing. You have to have quite a high bar for what you accept. Well, how well do you document those things like that, that the Dom piece specifically, cause it sounds pretty unique. It sounds, uh, pretty awesome, but you know, how well is that documented that, uh, invites people into, cause I think docs might lend a hand there. Again, a very good question. And I think I, um, I personally, um, not the, not always the best documenter. So, so I can think that something is fully documented because I precisely described it unambiguously. Yeah. Um, and yet there's an enormous right. gulf between, um, in, in some cases, uh, between that and what's needed for people to have a clear understanding if they lack the context of, you know, being inside my brain. So, um, so yes, it's a challenge and I guess where, what saved me so the this rewrite has been going for five years or nearly five years now um with pretty uniformly all the way through um people could come along and say the documentation could be improved and and yet we've survived and i think it's the universality of code um that that actually saves us that for a small but significant part of my audience they can verify how the software operates by looking at the code and there's not that much of it it's fairly neatly sliced up and so from a if you've got if you've got enough of a of an incentive um it's reasonably reasonably tractable to find your way around and to see what the thing does well there's different kinds of open source projects out there every every maintainer or author runs their projects a little bit differently. And you've got 87 contributors over the years, and this is probably just since the 2011 rewrites, all we have history in Git. But yeah. if we go look at the contributions list, um, you know, you have over 5,000 commits personally, and the next closest is 158. So we have an order of magnitude difference there. And yeah. is it fair to say that you're the primary developer, you know, on TiddlyWiki and, you know, you have people who pitch in here and there, but it's not like a robust team that's working on it day in day out. That's uh, absolutely true. Yes. Is that? Do you um, like it that way? Are you looking for more help, or are you looking? Are you like to keep on keeping on, and like people can help in other ways? The the mo some the people who missed out of that analysis are the people who work on um, uh, kind of other things within the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, this Tiddly Spot is a hosting service um, that's been running for almost as long as TiddlyWiki, and it's completely independent and and you know is supported by by people other than me. So, yes, in terms of the code, that does tend to be um, ninety eight percent Jeremy mm -hmm. um, or ninety five percent Jeremy. I'm not sure. Um, but in terms of the ecosystem as a whole, it does, it feels crucially like I'm less than 50% because again, projects like TiddlyWiki, like all open source projects, it deals with the conflicting requirements of its user base by adopting a plugin architecture so that we can encapsulate conflicting requirements in plugins. And, um, uh, in any project with plugins and a community, you'll see 
most of the innovation happens out in the plugin space. And that's definitely how I like it, because mm -hmm. that way there's a multiplicity of different things going on at once. Things aren't serialized on Jeremy's singular brain. Yeah. So it ends up, if you want a, project, if you want a, a, a system like that to, to survive and be healthy, oddly, the core needs to be unbelievably conservative. Mm -hmm. You basically want to hardly change anything apart from you know, but sort of rephrase that. Um, well, actually, you want to hardly change anything. Um, but uh, once you've got to where you need to get to, but um, what you do change, you need to pay incredible attention to backwards compatibility because plugin architectures typically allow very tight coupling between the plugins and the host architecture. And so you never really quite know what you might change that might inadvertently affect a plugin. So a lot of my job in the core is for sure there's, a, a, there's an agenda of features and um, mechanisms that need to be added and, and improved. But a big part of dealing with the kind of daily development is, is that, is kind of making sure that it works well as a, um, as a platform for the ecosystem. Um, trying to encourage contributors in many cases to focus their efforts on working on plugins rather than the core because once you put something in the core of a project like tiddlywiki there's no going back you can't then retract it um, you can deprecate it but if you want plugin compatibility to carry on you've got to keep the thing there mm -hmm. so there's a kind of uh, it, it ends up I say, I'm, making, I'm making it sound like a horror movie you know, <laughs> or a, a room that you can never go back into but, but honestly it's joyful because what one, what one sees as, you know, in exchange for I can't treat the core right. as my plaything that I do what I like with I have to be extremely respectful and what I'm respectful of is this say, the ecosystem in the sense of artifacts that people have created but also the thousands of hours that people have invested in understanding the product right. and, you know, figuring out how to get the best out of it and and in the end you know the the software is, is in open source is often a means to an end and the end is a well-informed purposeful community that can solve a bunch of problems um together or alone that they that they couldn't do before and i feel that we again because of this sense of tiddlywiki being used not just by developers therefore it's used in an incredibly wide array of of situations and contexts um and yes that that feels um that feels like the most fun i can have as a developer yeah. um writing code for other people awesome i think that leads us right into our closing questions um you just mentioned all the different ways that people have been involved plugins um you know obviously you had robust discussions in the issues maybe not the best place for them but live and learn um so our first closing question for you kind of relates back to what we talked about just a moment ago if you could have a clear call to action you know or a call for help to the open source community on how they can help you take tiddlywiki even further or you know to new heights what would you say to them what's the best way people can hop in and help you out it's interesting i think what open source needs is people paying attention to it. As we touched on before, one of Tillywiki's shortcomings is documentation. One of the things that I've learned about documentation is that we can try to have a single body of reference documentation that 
completely accurately describes the behavior of the system. That would be a great thing to have. But it's actually not really what's needed. What's needed is introductory documentation that helps people helps people up the on-ramp of using TiddlyWiki because of all the different directions that that can take. So, for instance, uh, we've got reasonable coverage for people who want to use TiddlyWiki in that standalone single file configuration. But the material for getting up and running on Node.js is still not as, not as straightforward and easy as it should be. So you know, helping with the documentation in TiddlyWiki is, is quite a good way to start because the documentation is written in TiddlyWiki. So making a contribution to the documentation is, is itself working with TiddlyWiki. And then um, for, uh, for a long time at the beginning of TiddlyWiki, it was actually writing, beginning of the rewrite, it was writing the documentation that um, drove the development. I, um, I was busy writing the tech docs and then trying to write the uh, features I needed of TiddlyWiki to, in order to present those documents. So given the fact that uh, you began on a Sinclair MK14, you've been hacking since, and the, the positive, the, the white hat version of hacking, not the negative, Given your expansive history with programming and languages and all the ups and downs and of tech and how it's gone slow to you or gone fast to others, uh, you, you got to have a programming hero. I, I can't even imagine if it's just one, but if you could just give us one single programming hero, who might that be for you? Yeah, and um, I thought about this and... Um... There's somebody who I became aware of in 1996. So I guess um, uh, I'll have other programming heroes from when I was younger. But it's Ward Cunningham. He's the developer of the original wiki. Um, and uh, for me, um, the thing that actually first attracted my interest was a colleague t uh, showing me the thing first and then telling me that it was 700 lines of Perl. Um, and I still think that's an incredibly impressive achievement that um, such a powerful piece of software you know, with profound implications that we've gradually learned as we've used it and built communities around it should be 700 lines of Perl. Pretty amazing stuff. So um, for that and uh, for his work on programming patterns, um, no difficulty in nominating Ward Cunningham. So it makes some sense too to choose somebody who's actually written a wiki before, right? Uh, it just seems like it's perfect, a perfect answer for you. So yeah. Well, uh, Jeremy, it's definitely been fun having you on the show. Definitely been fun diving deep into TiddlyWiki and your depth as a programmer, your history as a programmer is certainly appreciated to come on a show like this and and share, you know, from the '70s to now, uh, this this rich history and to see you. I think the most inspiring thing <clears throat> is that you haven't stopped. You know, is that. 30 years later, how many ever years later, whatever the actual number is, you're still going. So there's something encouraging in open source. There's something encouraging in this community. And uh, I think what if you didn't say it directly, I think a lot of your thoughts and a lot of your passion shares that this is a rich, vibrant thing to do. And that uh, it's it's encouraging to, to those who might be listening to the show that's thinking, is open source for me? You know, I'm not getting paid. I'm not getting uh, retribution for it. But it's, it's inspiring to see that uh, you've kept it going for all these years but anything else you want to say in closing before we tell the show uh yeah uh please um if you like what if you like what you've heard please give tiddlywiki a try it's the easiest thing in the world just go to tiddlywiki.com in your browser and give it a go 
fantastic. And as I said, it was awesome to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. To the listeners out there, we thank you for sharing the time as well to hear Jeremy's past and his history he shared here today. Uh, and those who sponsor the show, we love you. We thank you. And our members, you guys rock. Uh, up next, we do have some big shows. We've been mentioning these shows, and we're excited about the next few weeks of, uh, of the Change Law. we got the Future of WordPress and Calypso with Matt Mullenweg. And we also have a big show we're working on with Matt's 20 years of Ruby. So if you're a Rubyist, if you've ever even thought about writing Ruby, if you've ever envied Ruby, you want to listen to this show and you want to tell every single person you know that we're doing the show with Matt's. It's going to be awesome. 20 year history. We've also got Raquel Velez, Rockbot, NPM in the pipeline. So stay tuned for that. Uh, and that's it, guys. So let's tail out. Let's say, let's say goodbye. Bye. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Adam. Thanks very much. Bye.